please stand for the reading of God's word from the book of Psalms, chapter 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, will come home with the shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Andrea, and welcome again. Good morning, I'm Travis, I'm the pastor here. Uh, glad to have you, particularly if you're visiting for the first time. We know many people are moving into the area at this time, whether for school or work, or just because you decided you need a new start. And so we are glad to have you here with us. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, if you're interested in getting to know us, there's information on the back of the bulletin about how you can connect. But let me exhort our CTK regulars, please say hello to a face you don't know. It could be someone that you've just never met that's been here as long as you. Wouldn't that be nice? Or it could be someone that's new, and it'd be great to welcome them. Uh, I'm also, like Laura said, opening up office hours. It's just a way that uh, I'd like to try and get to connect with you more just in a quick way, learn more about your stories, um, talk with you about anything that's on your heart. So feel free to make use of those. I'll be opening them up sort of a month at a time to keep it flexible. Uh, but we are finishing a series today in these sections of the Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Our series has been the Songs of Ascent going through the first half of Psalms 120 through 134, uh, a section of Psalms that commentators have pointed out are something like a, a songbook for the ancient people of God when they would be on religious pilgrimage going back up to Jerusalem. Now, the people lived all over the country, but at least three times a year, they would be called back into a gathered, collected presence of God for festivals and feasts, times of remembrance like Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles to, to retell themselves the story of who God had been for them, what he had done for them, who they were called to be, what he was going to do for them in the years to come. And as they would journey towards Jerusalem on that long, slow journey, there were not cars, there were not scooters, there were not bikes, you were just walking on that slow journey, they would sing these songs. These very psalms were the ancient songbook of this people as they would go up to be gathered together. And as they went together, it would increase their desire to be in that place, to be gathered together, to remind themselves of who they were. And one author, Eugene Peterson, in his book that we've been referencing, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, about these psalms, notes that these psalms can be used to the same effect in our lives that they can increase our hunger for God on the long, slow journey that is Christian discipleship. And so I hope that this series has helped us start to grow in these ways, to, to increase our hunger for the things of God, to give us greater language for what it looks like to be on the journey of discipleship with him as we've talked about things like, like repentance, like worship, like the, the deliverance, the help, the shaping power of God in our lives. But we're closing our, our series, at least for now, we'll revisit the rest of these at some other time, but we're closing today by looking at Psalm 126, which at its core is about joy. 
It's not something we may talk about too often as Christians. You may assume that the Christian life means you are sort of a sad, suffocated, sort of well-kept person. That's what society maybe expects of you. That's what we maybe expect historically from our, our Christian traditions. But that's not what God expects. Joy may feel elusive to us. We may feel like I don't even want to get too close to that. I, I, I treat joy maybe in my life like a statue in a museum. It's there to be looked at from afar, but never to be touched, never to engage with in a real way. Even if we feel distant from joy, the heart of God for his people is that you would know the joy of the Lord. That the joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah 8 says, would be your strength, it would be your power or for life in a day-to-day -day way. And so today we're going to talk about the power of joy in the Christian life. And I want to see what this psalm has to show us about that through looking at three things. First, our relationship to joy. Second, joy's relationship to us. And then finally, how joy endures. So our relationship to joy, its relationship to us, and then how joy is an enduring power. Before we do that, would you bow your heads? Let's pray and ask God to fill up our hearts and our time. God, we come before you now approaching the turning of a season, a beginning of a new academic year, maybe the beginning of, of a new thing for so many of us, and maybe just the same old, same old for so many others of us. But we are here, God, before you now to talk and to hear about what you would say to us about joy about how you desire to give us good things, about how you are generous, about how you love to lavish good gifts on us, that you love to endure with us and to be the one who walks in the good times and the bad times. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would come in and that you would sit down with us in these very pews, that we might know that you are the one who loves us, who desires for us to see good days and walk with you all of our days. And would you be gracious to us in those things when we just feel like, God, I can't do that. I'm so tired of trying. I don't even want to try. I don't want to hear it. I'm tired of hearing it. God, would you just be gracious to us one more time? And so I pray this morning that you would come in into our very hearts, that we might hear from you and have the joy of the Lord be our strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have them open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be going back through the psalm a little bit together here this morning. But we begin by looking at our relationship to joy. Now, our relationship to joy, I think, is often like what the psalmist describes in verse 1. We feel like people who are dreaming. When we experience things that are just so, so good, we feel like... Israel experiencing God bringing them back from exile, which seems to be what the psalm is referencing here, this extreme joy that, that makes you feel like this can't be real, it's just a dream. Uh, our translation says in verse 1 that, that when God restored the fortunes of Zion, it's a little bit difficult to translate, but the, the original language might be closer to when the Lord brought about the restoration of Zion, which as we talked about last fall in our Nehemiah series, was a significant rebuilding, that the, that the city had been leveled, the people had been destroyed, and this was a coming back from exile, deportation, captivity, slavery, all these kinds of things. They were being brought back from having their lives crushed and destroyed. And they felt like they were dreaming that all of a sudden that nightmare was going to be over. But all of a sudden, God did things for them. Verses 2 and 3. 
And historically, that's through the work of Ezra and Nehemiah. They got to come home. They were a second-class people living in a country where they didn't speak the language. They had no power. They were slaves at best. Or they were living back at home in Israel, an oppressed people, under occupation, very poor, with no rights there either. And now, all of a sudden, they were getting to be people with stability, people with protection, people who were together in a place where people understood you. And it felt like a dream. That's what the psalmist is saying. When this happened to us, this felt like a dream, like it was just too good to be real. That all those tears that we had been sowing for decades, verses 5 and 6, those tears that we had been sowing in exile would all of a sudden be gone and somehow replaced not with just a banal, milquetoast life, but with shouts of joy, roars of joy at coming home. If we are honest or observant with ourselves, we'd probably say we are like that too when real deep experiences of joy come. Things that make us want to laugh and sing because they are so good. We feel like it's a dream. Now these things may not come along too often where we notice it in that way, but it happens a lot. It's going to happen more in the fall. Maybe for some of us men who feel less emotionally expressive, you might be watching a football game and find yourself suddenly emotionally expressive at joy that something has happened. You're going to pass a test that you didn't expect to pass, and you were going to have joy at that moment. You're going to get a promotion. You're going to make it through in some way. Something's going to happen relationally. You're going to feel joy. You're going to feel like, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe it's too good to be true. We feel like at some point it won't last, like it's fragile, like something we have hoped for will sooner or later go away or won't actually be true in the end. We feel like we're going to go back to that place where all we're doing is sowing tears. We're not shouting with joy. We're not excited. We are depressed and sad and anxious. One author, Brene Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, has a term for this approach that we have to joy. This, this kind of, it, it's got to be too good to be true. It feels like a dream. I know I'm going to wake up at some point where we just brace for pain in the midst of something awesome, not in the midst of something dangerous and terrible, where we, we hold back a little bit right in the middle of something that is so, so good. She calls it foreboding joy. Foreboding joy. It's her term for how we are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. How we're always expecting the next bad thing to come, that we can't settle into just a moment of joy, that we're, we're bracing ourselves a little bit. Almost like any of you, if you've, if you've adopted a rescue animal or if you've had one yourselves, you know that there can be a real skittishness about an animal that's been mistreated. And we feel that way with joy, that, that if, someone were to, if we were that animal, reach out for a pet, that we would be afraid that something bad is going to happen. In the same way that we, we can feel like God's extension of joy to us is just we gotta, we got to brace a little bit. It's going to hurt in a minute. We know that. We're used to that. We're waiting for the pain to happen. We, we fall back into fear right in the middle of the joy that's in front of us. She says, joy, quote, can feel like a setup to us. We wake up in the morning and think, everything is going well. Oh, no. This is bad. This is really bad. Disaster must be lurking right around the corner. She says, we do things like stand over our children while they sleep, and our hearts just burst for joy about how much we love them, and we start to think about what it would be like if they got really sick. 
or if they got in an accident. We do things like spend time with a family member or a friend who means so, so much to us, and in the middle of that, we start to think, what would it be like if this relationship wasn't there anymore? We maybe recognize a few weeks into the school year, sometime into a new job or a new project, how much we love that thing, and then we start to think, what if I started to hate it here? What would happen to that joy that I have? May we get our cancer to go into remission. We get our back pain to stop. We get our health problems to finally calm down, and we start to get afraid of the next time that those things will come back. We can't just stay in the joy. We find ourselves getting sucked back in time and again to being afraid instead of being in the joy. Maybe that's familiar to you. Certainly familiar to me. When I was going through, I had back surgery. I don't know if you know that several years ago. Um, I had a microdiscectomy, like lopped off a little part of my disc that was just crushing my S1 motor nerve. But in the midst of that and recovering from that, I finally got on the other side and I wasn't having crippling nerve pain anymore. And what did I start to do? I started to think, what's going to happen when this happens again? How long until the next time? I couldn't just stay in that place of, I'm so glad that I'm not in that pain anymore. I started to be afraid of the next time that that might happen again. This is the foreboding joy that we live out of. It's hard for us to just stay an experience, in an experience of good things. We brace for the worst thing right in the middle of experiencing something that we've hoped for. Something that is so, so good. Something that we genuinely love and appreciate. We just brace a little bit. Brown says this, this bracing for impact in the face of joy is ultimately aimed at minimizing an experience of vulnerability. It's aimed at our avoiding pain. She says what we're trying to do is beat vulnerability to the punch. We don't want to be blindsided by hurt. We don't want to be caught off guard. So we literally practice being devastated. We think about how things are going to be when they break down. Or we stay in self-selected disappointment. We choose not to get into things that would be happy so that we don't have to feel the pain of losing them later. We step out of joy to brace for pain. This is how many of us, how I, relate to pain and joy a lot of times. We can't just be in it. There's a, a hesitancy about how we would relate to it. And we do that right in the face of joy, not in the face of fear. We're not doing these things when something is falling apart, when something is bad. We're doing it right in the middle of something that's so good. We can't help but get stuck in that bracing for the pain that's going to be coming around the corner as if we could just stop ourselves from feeling that pain in the future if we can just step back now. If we can just be a little farther away from the joy, then we won't feel the pain when that joy is gone because we never let ourselves get too close to it. That we can sort of protect ourselves by never experiencing something too good. But life does not work that way. As Brene Brown explains, we don't avoid loss or pain, even deep crushing loss or pain by holding back from joy, by holding back from good things, by trying to feel less, hoping that we'll somehow get hurt less. The hurt still comes even if we try to protect ourselves. She shares a story about a man in his early 60s who told her, I used to think the best way to go through life was to expect the worst. Anybody else like that? 
Expect the worst, plan for it, maybe the best will happen. You'll be surprised. He says that way, if it happened, you were prepared. And if it didn't happen, you were pleasantly surprised. He says, then I was in a car accident and my wife was killed. Needless to say, expecting the worst didn't prepare me at all. He says, and worse, I still grieve for all those wonderful moments we shared that I didn't fully enjoy because I was holding back. Here's a man living by the foreboding joy philosophy that if you just keep yourself at arm's length, you won't get hurt that bad. And he is telling you, It doesn't work. He wasn't ready for the pain, and he wishes that he had more fully lived into those moments of joy, that he had just been present in the small everyday things, the snoring of a spouse, right? The way someone chews their food, that he wishes he had just been more present. Brené Brown says the reality is when we turn every opportunity to feel joy into a test drive for despair, we actually diminish our resilience for pain. It gets less, not greater, because every time, by converse, we allow ourselves to lean into joy and give into those moments, we actually build resilience. The joy becomes part of who we are, she says, so that when bad things happen, and they do happen, we are stronger when they come along, not weaker. In other words, it's by entering more fully into the joy of a moment, whenever we find it, that we have more strength to sustain us when joy is absent. It's by building up the muscles of joy that we have greater strength when joy is absent. So that means that the way that we prepare for loss and pain is not by doing what we instinctively do. It's not by holding back. It's not by by making sure that we never get too attached to something. We never let ourselves be too well-known somewhere. We never let ourselves be seen enjoying something. We never let ourselves be too invested so that there's that risk that if it goes away, if someone doesn't treat it exactly rightly, that, that we'll feel pain. That's not how we get through things. That's not how we endure things. The way that we do that is the way that the psalmist does it here. We store up joy like grain in a barn for a time of famine. We store up joy for that day that it won't be there, like water in a reservoir, like light in a solar panel for weeks of no sun. We sing it, we celebrate, we revel in it. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He is harvesting joy, storing up joy not worrying about what's going to happen the next time that Israel falls away from God. That if this was the last time, what will the next time be? No, he's staying in the moment. He's not getting so caught up in the long history of Israel, which is important. He's not getting in his own head. He is just in that moment. He is just grateful for what God has done for them. So often that's what we do. We get caught up in that long trail of the history of who we have been of that sin struggle that keeps dogging us day in and day out, the way that we talk to people that we just wish we wouldn't talk to them like that, the way that we use our time or our money or our affection, the ways that we just just get caught up in that cycle. We don't stay in that just one moment where God gave you the grace to be different, to just celebrate that, to just rejoice in a moment that something was good and beautiful. The way that we prepare for those times where we're going, 
to face struggle is not by staying at arm's length, not by beating ourselves up, not by staying in that endless cycle, but by storing up the joy that's going to give you the resilience for that time to come. It's by creating something like a strategic reserve of joy. Right? The U.S. has a strategic reserve of oil for a time of great urgency when you might somehow need that much oil. We need to create a strategic reserve. The psalmist is creating a strategic reserve of joy. Christians need a strategic reserve of joy. God wants his people to be joyful. Joy is important. It is not an afterthought. It is core to being a Christian. It is core to what is going to get you through the next 10, 20, 30, or 50 years of your life. Being in those moments, harvesting the goodness of who God is in those moments. That's how we endure pain and loss. Not by avoiding joy, but by being shaped and reinforced by it. Being continually driven to hope because we keep seeing joy show up in our story right in the midst of all the pain. We keep seeing joy. We're training our eyes to keep looking for joy so that we can meet that famine, that dark time, with what we have stored up to face it. It's not by reducing our supplies so that we won't be hungry later. It's not by starving ourselves so that we don't have an appetite. It's by building up rich reserves that we can draw on when the normal things that we would enjoy are gone. by having a different relationship to joy that actually stems, to get us into our second point, from joy's relationship to us. We can endure the pain of life by stockpiling joy rather than avoiding it because one of the secrets of joy is it doesn't go away. I don't know if you thought about that. I hadn't thought about that until I was getting more into this psalm, but joy does not go away. We're going to talk about what I mean by that, but it, it doesn't go bad. It doesn't expire. Joy doesn't have a shelf life. It doesn't have a half life. It's not reducing little by little over time. Joy's relationship to us is one of permanence. It's just there. And we know that's true experientially. I want you to do a little thought exercise with me here. I want you to think about a joyful memory that you have. You can close your eyes if that helps you. Think about a joyful memory, just whatever comes to mind, something that was beautiful, something that you loved, a moment where someone was kind to you, someone was good to you, someone did something great with you, with someone that you really value. You can still feel the joy of that moment. I can think, for example, of when I was little, maybe six or seven, I used to play Monopoly with my grandfather. And because Monopoly is like a never-ending game, almost as bad as Risk, we would take breaks and go to the little community pool. And there at the community pool, I would badger him to trade with me for an hour. Grandpa, give me this. Grandpa, give me this. And he would just play with me and just spend time with me and just love being there and didn't mind that I was being an obnoxious six or seven-year-old trying to get this one stupid card <laughs> for a game that would end in another hour. But I can still feel that. I can still go to that place where I was six or seven and feel the love of that moment. It has not changed. It is equally vibrant now as it was then. 
And I imagine you can go back and, and in your heart, you can step back into that moment, whatever it was, and that joy of that moment is equally as vibrant. It's just there. It hasn't gone away. It's just there. Might even well up with tears a little bit if, if that moment that you're remembering is for a relationship that really meant something to you and that relationship isn't there anymore. And we don't just well up with tears because, because we don't get to have that same connection now, I'd argue, but, but also because of the power of that moment in itself. Because it was so good. It's not just the absence of it, it's the goodness of it that brings us to tears of joy. There's not just tears of sorrow in the human condition. There's tears of joy where something is so beautiful it moves you. We feel not just the absence of the thing, but how good it was in the first place. And even if you feel that, that sting of tears of loss and not just tears of joy, that loss or pain has not erased the joy. My grandfather has been gone for 22 years, and nothing about the joy of that memory has changed. Nothing about how much I would miss him when I lost him a few years later would erase how much of that joy I still have. Loss does not get to touch joy. The joy is still there. It may separate us. It may break communication. It may break contact. It may break community, but it can't touch joy. Joy just remains. It persists. We can still feel it. It's still in us. And this points to, to joy being something that's actually beyond brokenness and breakdown. Joy is beyond something that can just become corrupted. It's something enduring that pain and loss can't take away. So we can stockpile joy as a resource against our pain and losses rather than just avoiding them because joy doesn't break down. Joy doesn't leave us. Joy doesn't get worse. Joy is like a spiritual version of a Twinkie. You could put it on a shelf and it is just always the same Twinkie millions of years in the future. It's just there. And you ponder with fear about how you've eaten that. And those preservatives are now one with you. So maybe you will. But it has that staying power. It's just there. It's enduring. We can stockpile it because it won't go bad. It keeps popping back up. It's joy is stubborn in that way. It's stubborn in verses 5 and 6. Do you see that? The people who are sowing tears, joy keeps sprouting up. Could you imagine if you are planting tomato plants, but corn just keeps coming up? You plant tomatoes, and yet more corn keeps coming. The stubborn thing just keeps coming back no matter what you do. The people are sowing something that is not what they are harvesting. They are harvesting joy when they have been planting tears. Joy rises to the surface again and again, even though we go through pain. Even though you feel those losses, joy is just stubborn and persistent and it keeps driving through the cracks in the ground like those little plants that you see growing in the sidewalk where there is no soil, there's seemingly no water or light, and yet it's just busting through there. Joy is persistent like that. It doesn't go away. And that means joy's relationship to us is enduring. It's resilient. It's stubborn. The pains and losses come and go, but joy, joy stays with you. It refuses to leave. 
We can stockpile it and be stronger for it because it refuses to leave. It's going to stay with you. That experience, that great moment, that small moment, that having your grandparent read to you, that reading to your child, or whatever it is, that, that small thing is going to stay with you. No one can take that. You can rely on it and draw from it. It's going to be there. How can that be? How can joy be so enduring? Why is it so enduring? More so than loss. If loss can't take it away, if pain can't take it away, why does joy keep sprouting back up? That brings us to our last point of how joy is this enduring thing that stays with us, that keeps coming back. The psalmist says that joy is so persistent, verse 3, because of the great things that God does. That verse 4, it's God who brings restoration like a flood in the desert. That's what that verse is referring to. A flash flood that can come out of nowhere and instantly what was a desert can become a river. That's what led to Israel's joy in coming back from exile. The psalmist is saying, why I have joy right now is because God did something amazing for us. God did something great for us. Everyone could see it. We can see it. God did something great. That's why I have joy. That's what leads also to his confidence that God's going to keep doing great things. In verses 5 through 6, that despite any future harvesting of, or sowing of tears that they're going to do, that they're going to eventually be harvesting joy. His confidence is that God restores. God, even though you plant tears, harvests joy. God, even though you plant pain and suffering, continues to sprout up joy in your life. Joy, the psalm is convinced, is an enduring thing because it's an enduring power because it is directly from God. That joy in the human experience is one of those things that is directly an experience of God, of who he is and what he is like. It's enduring because it's from God. And that's not just the idea of the psalmist. The apostle Paul agrees in Galatians 5.22, calling joy one of the fruits or products of the Holy Spirit. It's an aspect of the life of the Spirit. It means joy is something that comes from God who is himself eternal. Joy is emanating from the eternal one, so it is eternal. The source of joy is eternal. Joy is eternal because of where it comes from, because of who it's a part of, what he's attached to. Joy endures because it is a thing of God who endures. It's in him. It's from him. It's stable because he is stable. It's persistent because he is persistent. It's stubborn because God is stubborn. It's abiding with you because God is abiding with you. It rises up in the ashes because it comes from the one who can't help but keep getting off the ground in the face of pain and loss as he did so powerfully and joyfully in the resurrection where even though Jesus had sowed in tears his lifelong, his ministry, and particularly at the crucifixion enduring unimaginable pain and loss to carry and bury the flesh of sin that was in us. Doing that in his own body. That though he sowed 
moved in tears, he could not help but rise up from the pain by the power of the very same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I to give his people a harvest of joy by overcoming not just the sin that was in us, but the death that sin leads to and brings in all people. Because that's who he is. He is the one who endures. He is the one that though you may plant in tears, he is going to sow in joy. The psalmist had a confidence that God was going to show up and give joy. And Jesus is the very fulfillment of that promise and confidence that God is, does, always will show up and give joy in the face of tears. Whatever you have sown for your life up to this point, the confidence of Scripture, the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, is that tears, God is going to harvest joy. Amen. Because that is who he is. And that's not just a, a, a prosperity gospel. Your life is going to be great from now on. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus said. But the joy endures, like Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 20, even though we will go through times of weeping and lamenting as the world around us rejoices. But, Jesus said, our sorrow will eventually turn into joy because, what, because life's circumstances will be great? Because you'll finally get that promotion? Because that neighbor will finally move out? Because your roommate will finally start cleaning their own dishes? No, but praise God if they do, right? No, your sorrow will turn into joy because you will see him again. And Jesus says your hearts will rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy away from you when you see him. That is the source of ultimate enduring joy. That he endures and we will see him the enduring one, and we will endure with him because by grace, through faith, we are in him now, united to him so that his life, his enduring joy becomes our life. It flows through us. It is in us by the Holy Spirit. We are alive in that enduring joy now in Christ. The resurrection is alive in you now in Christ. Not just in that one day when you were raised bodily from the dead, but even now, spiritually, the resurrection of joy, if you believe up in you today, now. Our joy is permanent in him already. Imagine what it will be like when you see him face to face. This is how joy is so enduring because it's from God who endures, who endures even the pain of the cross to make joy the inheritance of all who would just believe. So practically then, how do we live more into joy? How do we stop this foreboding joy, bracing ourselves for impact and, and lean into resilience? I want to encourage us to do that a little more this, this week, this month, this year, through stockpiling joy, through confidence. We, ha we do have to make a priority to create something like a strategic reserve of joy for yourself. We, we have to catch ourselves in those moments where we're saying, mm -mm, too good to be true. 
I'm not going to lean in. I might get hurt. No, I'm not. I just, I, I don't want to get too close to the joy. I don't want people to see me having a good time. To just, even if it's for one second, step in and just soak up the joy a little bit. I've done a lot of physical therapy for my back. We'll reference the back surgery again. One of the things that the physical therapists have had me do is create space between my spinal column vertebrae so that the discs can soak back up the spinal fluid, which is so nourishing to them. In the same way, we need to step into joy to let our, our soul expand a little bit and absorb the joy that is just those good moments. We can't always be so compressed and afraid and fearful that that joy is going to go away. We do need the nutrients that are in there for our souls. Try not to sidestep the joy and get stuck in those thoughts of worry about what's going to happen next. Catch yourself, catch your friend, catch your classmate, catch your spouse, catch your roommate, and just store up the joy. Just invite yourself, invite them. Just, just enjoy that. Just lean into that. Love that. Be excited. Revel in it. Let it be a moment that you are just completely present. Put down the phone, turn off the TV, the computer, whatever it is. Just be present. If it's a sunset, just be present. If it's just beautiful scenery, just be present. Just be there in that moment. Store that up. You are going to need that. And do it through the confidence that God really does restore his people. Because it, does, it takes courage and vulnerability to lean all the way into joy like that, to let yourself be vulnerable, to, to let it be possible that what you love so much is going to be taken away and broken, or that it won't be as great in the end as it is right now in this moment. It's, it's hard to do that. It's hard not to worry about loss, but we are helped in doing that if we take the vulnerability on with the confidence that God can restore whatever you lose. That you are not watching your back on your own. That you have someone who stands beside you, who surrounds you, as we talked about in previous sermons, like God surrounds his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. That you have someone at your back who will take care of you, that is going to give you the opportunity to let your guard down and be vulnerable enough to just be in the moment. That is what he does. That's what the cross and the resurrection give you. That's what the power of God gives you, is that ability to just be vulnerable in the moment, to be present to it, to be confident that he stubbornly brings a harvest of joy after a planting of tears. So I want to encourage you to try to stockpile joy this week with the confidence that God's enduring power makes that space open for you. That even if some tears are going to come in the future, that God stubbornly keeps harvesting joy. And I can be in this moment because that's who he is. And that's what he's going to do for me by grace, just because I have put my hope in him. Because at the cross, he has already handled all the losses that I might possibly brace for. And he has crushed them under his foot and said, you don't get to say what I do with those who belong to me. Tears may come in the night. Joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. We'd like to leave some space here at CTK for you to respond in your heart to some of the things that we've just talked about. 
maybe thanking God for the ways that he has given you moments of enduring joy, that you do have those things to be grateful for, those, those beautiful moments. Maybe confessing the ways that, that you don't really want to put confidence in him to take care of our losses, that, that you'd rather play it safe, that you'd rather keep a distance, that, that you want to do it yourself. Maybe ask God to, to teach us to have that vulnerability, to trust him, to live into joy. Let's pray for a few moments. God, we ask that you would hear these prayers and by your gracious, enduring joy that you would answer. In your son's name we pray, amen.